This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That is 1 Peter 5.8. Guys, thank you so much for being on the show today, or not being on the show, being with us while I am on the show today. And I just want to give a quick thank you, as always, to our donors. Guys, if you don't know this by now, the only reason we're able to keep the lights on here at Undaunted Life is because we have amazing donors out there. So we have a lot of monthly donors, and then we also have guys hopping in on a one-time basis. If you want to see more content like this, get out to men around the globe. We need you as donors. And guys, I've been getting a lot of messages and emails about this new program that I keep teasing. I tease it on the 17 ways to avoid being a crappy man episode uh, back at the beginning of this year. And we're working on some stuff right now and we hope to release it this quarter. Okay. So February is probably not going to happen, but we're shooting for March to be releasing something. So be on the lookout for that. Make sure you are paying attention to your inboxes. If you're not signed up for our email list in the show notes, make sure you're signed up for the email list because the, the YouTube algorithm doesn't love us. The Instagram algorithm doesn't love us, but if I can reach you directly through your inbox, that's what we want to do. So in the quick hitters today for today's program, well, you know what, actually, um, I'm just going to do the first quick hitter here because like I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. So uh, let me give you the list of the quick hitters, but then this, I'm actually going to do the first one first before we get into what we're talking about today. But Muslim fundamentalists slaughtering nearly 200 Christians in Nigeria around Christmas time. And so I'm just going to go ahead and go down to my notes. So just stick with me as I go through, because we got a lot of stuff we're covering today, but okay. So Most of you don't even know that this story happened. Again, Muslim fundamentalists slaughtering nearly 200 Christians in Nigeria, and this happened at the end of last year around Christmas time. So this is according to Christian Christian Today, not Christianity Today, but Christian Today. Christians in Nigeria's Plateau State are living in fear of more attacks after devastating bloodshed over the Christmas period. The death toll from the massacre of Christians in the days leading up to Christmas has reached nearly 200, and more bodies are being discovered, according to Release International. Some 80 communities were targeted between December the 23rd and the 28th, as Christians around the world were celebrating the birth of Christ. The attacks have been attributed to radicalized Fulani herdsmen. In addition to killing villagers, the attackers set fire to churches, corn stores, and clinics buildings belonging to Muslims were left untouched. So I'm going to go right to the big takeaway on this one. And again, I've been very angry about this one and I just haven't had a chance because we had other things that we were releasing on the show. And so I wanted to talk about it because basically no one did. Basically no one talked about it. And here's my big takeaway. It's actually a big question. Where is the international condemnation and outrage on this? Because I'm getting told a lot that because I support Israel and their war against Hamas that I and supporting the murder of innocent civilians, even though every single drop of blood spilled in this conflict is on the hands of Hamas. But I'm being told that we can't be talking about that. But these people that seem to be overwhelmed with uh, empathy and great feelings towards people of color, towards oppressed people, why aren't they talking about these Christians that were slaughtered in Nigeria? I have some ideas. Could it be because no one in the leftist media cares when Christians are slaughtered? Perhaps. Could it be because it was poor and oppressed Muslims? I use scare quotes with poor and oppressed Muslims that did the attack? Perhaps. Could it be because this is just an international example of black on black crime? Perhaps that as well. Could it be because it doesn't fit their preferred narrative that helps substantiate their preconceived notions about power dynamics? Definitely. Definitely. It's certainly all those other other things, could be those other things, but it's definitely that. Because they have a preconceived notion 
like these ridiculous things that, oh, you know, these these poor Muslims there, they, they were just doing what they felt they had to do. They didn't have enough jobs. They didn't have enough opportunities. They couldn't play the sports that they wanted growing up. They don't have enough books. They don't have iPads. They need internet. They need all these different things. And somehow those things would stop fundamentalist Islam. When are people going to wake up to the fact that these people hate Christians because they hate Christians? These people want Christians to die because according to their religion, they're apostates. That they, they, they need to be eradicated, right? Because that's why they did this. They didn't do this for fun. They did this because they thought that's what Allah wanted them to do. And I've talked a lot about fundamentalist Islam on the show, and I did a lot of it whenever Hamas attacked Israel, Israelis uh, in October of last year. But again, this is one of those stories that Christians around the world should have been up in arms about this, but seemingly we don't care. I mean, the major news outlets out there, so if you're a conservative, Fox News or Daily Wire or The Blaze, I don't think any of them covered it. You certainly didn't see it on MSNBC or the Washington Post, or it certainly wasn't on the front page of the New York Times. But if one black person in America is killed by a police officer, even if that person was in the process of trying to kill that police officer, we're going to burn our cities to the ground. Isn't that interesting? And we have people rioting and looting and burning cities right now all over the world because Israel is defending itself against Hamas and defending future Israelis from the predations of Hamas by killing them now. What are we supposed to do with that? So wanted to make sure I brought that story to you here from the very, very beginning because it's just, it's absolutely astonishing. So let me go back up to the top of my notes here. So here are the other things we're going to cover in the quick hitters. We're going to cover Ohio Governor Mike DeWine vetoing a bill that would have banned the bodily mutilation and chemical castration of trans-identified children in his state, Harvard President Claudine Gay resigning after failing to condemn anti-Semitism on campus and after revelations of intentional plagiarism in roughly half of her scholarly work, Donald Trump being removed from the Republican primary ballot in Colorado and Maine, and the release of the names of some of Jeffrey Epstein's pedophilic clients. But what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to be talking about the Enneagram. And so right from the jump here, we're going to be doing a lot of technical work here. I'm going to try to, you know, weave a narrative for you, but just follow me. Because if you love the Enneagram, hate the Enneagram, or have never heard of it, I'm talking to all of you today, okay? So if the Enneagram is like your sacred cow that you don't want me to talk about, I'm telling you, just keep logged in, okay? So let's talk about personality tests in general. So I've taken a lot of personality tests over the years, tons of them. And, you know, there's the ones that tell you what color your personality is or what animal your personality is. And mine was always the most intense color, the most intense animal. So I was like the rhino, right? So I always like ran people over like that. That was kind of my personality. But then you get into some more of the technical ones like the Myers-Briggs and some other ones that we'll talk about a little bit later. And I've just done tons of these over the years and they're, and they're fun, right? Because all of us seemingly want some sort of, you know, revealed insight or secret knowledge into how we are the way that we are and why we do the things that we do. So personality tests can be fun, but for some people, personality tests turn into a way that they're going to now operate in the world. And so that's where it becomes a little bit sketchy. So when we talk about the Enneagram, I literally remember the first time I heard about the Enneagram, first time I heard the word Enneagram, is because the guy that was leading our Sunday school at the time, and so this is the same Sunday school that I'm in right now, or you know, a, you know, a derivative of the same Sunday school, and the guy named Donnie, 
He is a uh, licensed family therapist and counselor. And so we're at a marriage retreat with my Sunday school. And this was, you know, five years ago. We had just been a part of the Sunday school for a little bit. And so we took this test. And I think we took it before we showed up. And then when we got there, we all kind of knew what our Enneagram was. And we kind of knew our wives. And then we got to talk about how that all related to one another. One another, And it was actually very informative. And I thought very, very helpful. And so the what I did with it is I was like, oh my gosh, the Enneagram is the greatest personality test I've ever taken. And because of my leadership bend of my higher education, like this is a big deal, like, you know, to have the best of the best, right? And so I was suggesting that all kinds of people do this, right? So I would just, you know, recommend it to random people. But I was also doing a lot of business consulting, uh, you know, several years ago. And when I would consult with businesses, I would have everyone in their C-suite. So all their executives take this exam to see what Enneagram they were. And then I would determine, okay, this person is a this and this person is a that, and here's how they can coalesce and communicate with one another. And so I use the Enneagram to make money. And I use it to increase the value that was going to be added within these, you know, high leverage teams in these business contexts. And then we saw the Enneagram seemingly exploding in counseling circles all over the place, therapy circles all over the place, and then specifically in Christian circles. There are just so many pastors. I would hear mention the Enneagram from the pulpit as just even like an aside. I even remember Matt Chandler mentioning it just randomly in some sort of a sermon. Uh, pastors were having their staffs do it. So their entire staff, whether they have a five-person staff or a 500-person staff, they were having everybody take the Enneagram. Some of them would actually put their Enneagram number outside their office. And then we saw a bunch of Christian publishers, a bunch of them, releasing books on the Enneagram. And literally, if you go to Amazon right now, there are hundreds of books if you type in Christian Enneagram. And so some of the more notable ones is Thomas Nelson has a nine book series called the Enneagram Collection, which has one book by different authors about each of the nine Enneagram types or Enneotypes. Then Thomas Nelson also put out another book called More Than Your Number, a Christ-centered Enneagram approach to becoming aware of your internal world by Jeff and Beth McCord. And then Zondervan published in 2022 an offering called the Enneagram of Belonging, a compassionate journey of self-acceptance by Christopher Hertz. And then Intervar City Press, they released a book in 2021 called The Enneagram Goes to Church, Wisdom for Leadership, Worship, and Congregational Life by Todd Wilson. And, and there's tons and tons more. But a couple of years ago, I was listening to an episode of the Unbelievable Podcast with Justin Brierley. So that's a debate show over in the UK where they typically have, you know, an atheist on one side and a Christian on the other. But this was a facilitated debate between two Christians. And the debate was between a pro-Enneagram pastor named Todd Wilson, the, the guy that I just mentioned who wrote The Enneagram Goes to Church. And an ex New Ager named Marcia or Marcia, 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 Marcia. There you go, Marcia Montenegro. I, I nailed the last name, and I can't get Marcia right. So it was between Todd Wilson and Marcia Montenegro. And uh, Marcia Montenegro is the author of Richard Rohr and the Enneagram Secret. Now I remember at the time being a little confused before listening to this debate because I didn't think the validity of the Enneagram was something that needed to be debated. Like, I was very confused. I just thought that the Enneagram was this morally neutral thing that was just good if you used it. I thought it was just great overall because it seemed to work and it seemed to help people in relationships and in business. And ultimately, that was the only point that Pastor Todd Wilson could muster up during this debate. It was basically, how bad can this be? Like, it works. And that was that was his only debate point. He was actually a really terrible debater, maybe just not in general, but specifically on this point. But after listening to that entire debate on the Unbelievable podcast, I knew I had to take a much deeper dive into this topic. So I did. 
It took took me a while to get around to. I had some other things I've been talking about over the last couple of years. But this podcast today is a culmination of what I found out. Now, as I go through this, it's going to seem like a lot of information, and it is. But please stick with me. Again, I'm going to try to go slow and make sure that we're, we're constantly knowing where we're at, but really try to tune in here and stick with us through the end. So the first thing that we need to do is talk about what is the Enneagram. So some of you guys are like, I have no idea what this word even means. I wish you would tell me. So this is according to a bunch of different contributors on Wikipedia. And I know some people don't like Wikipedia, but I looked at the sources and it's going back to people that are proponents of the Enneagram. Okay. So these are not people that want to make it look bad. So here's according to Wikipedia. The Enneagram of personality, or simply the Enneagram, is a model of the human psyche which is principally understood and taught as the typology of nine interconnected personality types. As a typology, the Enneagram defines nine personality types, sometimes called enneotypes, which are represented by the points of a geometric figure called an enneagram, which indicates some of the principal connections between the types. And so here are the nine types, and again, these are referred to as enneotypes. Reformer, oh, these actually correlate with the numbers, so I'll give their number. Number one is reformer, number two is helper, number three is achiever, number four is individualist, number five is investigator, number six is loyalist. Number seven is enthusiast. Number eight is challenger. And number nine is peacemaker. And with that, there are what they call triads of three types that have kind of multiple corresponding personality issues. So the first is the intellectual center, which combines number five, the investigator, number six, the loyalist, and number seven, the enthusiast. Then you have the emotional center, which combines number two, helper, number three, achiever, and number four, individualist. And then you have the instinctual center, which combines number one, reformer, number eight, challenger, and number nine, peacemaker. In addition to that, there are wings, okay? So these are the types that are on either side of you on the Enneagram diagram, okay? These wings create, I guess, your spectrum, which describes your personality. And so if you look at a picture of the Enneagram, if you're an Enneagram 1, your wings would be number 2 and number 9. If you're an Enneagram 6, your wings are number 5 and number 7. And then also you have your connecting lines. This is that interconnectedness that I mentioned earlier, which describes where your personality goes when under stress or need for security. So, for example, according to the Enneagram, according to this diagram, number 8, if you're a number 8, which is a challenger, when you're under stress, you will either go to number 2, which is helper, or number five, which is investigator, okay? There's a whole lot more to it than that, but that's essentially the gist. But right from the jump here, I'm going to give you two major problems with the Enneagram, and the second of which is of vast importance. So here's the first one. It is completely untested and has no scientific nor psychological data to confirm its usefulness. It is essentially overall a pseudoscience. Okay, so Dr. Bruce Thayer wrote a book called Science and Pseudoscience in Social Work Practice. He described the Enneagram as, quote, an assessment method of no demonstrated reliability or validity, unquote. There's a naturalist philosopher named Robert Todd Carroll who wrote the book The Skeptics, the Skeptics Dictionary, and he said that the Enneagram is on the list of other pseudoscientific theories that, quote, can't be tested because they are so vague and malleable that anything relevant can be shoehorned to fit the theory, unquote. And then here's the thing as I was kind of looking through this, it's kind of a telling sign that comes from the response to this criticism by Enneagram proponents. It, it's that their response that it works cite only anecdotal, only anecdotal evidence, okay? So some might call it anecdata, right? Because there's no hard evidence that the Enneagram is true or helpful but we only hear these stories of, well, if it doesn't work, then why did my relationship with my boss improve, huh? Why did my relationship with my spouse improve, huh? 
But the reality is that the burden of proof that the Enneagram is legitimate is on the proponents of the Enneagram, not me, not anyone who would maybe doubt it. But the proponents of the Enneagram can't seem to be bothered to do the hard data-driven work of proving it. So that's the first problem with the Enneagram. But the second one, again, is of monumental importance to this discussion. It has demonic and anti-Christian origins that cannot simply be ignored because the modern uses of the Enneagram are essentially the exact same as when they were formalized. So in brief, basically, the Enneagram is scientifically, psychologically, and spiritually, at least in a Christian sense, worthless. It's worthless. But we need to dig a lot deeper. And again, if you're an Enneagram person and you're tempted to turn this off because I'm, you know, taking out your sacred cow, stick with me, okay? But we're going to, we need to back up all the way to the beginning, okay? And just a quick note from the jump, the Enneagram rabbit hole goes deep. I mean, mega deep. Like I went way down the rabbit hole last week. So I'm literally just about to give you guys a high point overview of what we're dealing with here. And I could have spent a lot more time on this. I could have done a five hour episode on this today, but I'm just going to give you again, some of those high points for whatever that's worth. So where did the Enneagram come from? We need to define that. Some people claim that it's too disputed to attribute to one source. There are others that say that the Enneagram is a derivative of a fourth century Christian mystic that lived in Alexandria, Egypt named Evagrius Ponticus great name. However, when you look at the specifics of the Enneagram and the specific works of Ponticus, you can only see vague similarities at best, so I don't think that's that's a very good way of looking at it. But in order to get to the bottom of how we got the Enneagram in modernity, it comes down to the work of three men, okay? Those three men are George Gurdjieff, Oscar Echazo, and Claudio Naranjo, okay? So we need to dig into each one. Let's dig into the first one, George Gurdjieff. So he died in 1949. He was born in Alex, uh, Alexandropol in the Russian Empire, which is now Armenia. He's a mystic philosopher and spiritual teacher, okay? And he was seen by his followers as a spiritual master, and he was also seen as an esotericist. So esotericism uh, is, you know, it's being the loose connection of all Western philosophies, essentially except for Judeo-Christian religions and Enlightenment rationalism. So that's kind of what esotericism is. And he was also seen as an occultist. So occultism is just the practice of, you know, witchcraft, mysticism, magic. And I've mentioned mysticism a few times. So mysticism is kind of this, I'm going to become with one with God. That's kind of what mysticism is. But also George Gurdjieff is credited as being the first person to use the word Enneagram. He's also credited as the sole source of the geometric figure that displays those nine interconnected traits that I described earlier. He also taught people, or sorry, he taught that people were not conscious beings. So we are just like any other animal. We have no consciousness. He also described humans as living in a hypnotic state of waking sleep, as he called it. However, he did have his own message of hope, and that was that humans could awaken themselves to kind of a higher state of consciousness, which would allow them the ability to serve our purpose as human beings. What purpose was that exactly? Well, he didn't seem to specify that. Uh, he just uh, said that if we tried really, really hard, that we could get into this supposed higher state of consciousness. He also taught that humans were able to do this by a process that he called the work. 
okay, which is essentially an extreme focus on one's self. It's a self mastery. He practiced or his practice was dubbed the fourth way by one of his students with the other three ways being one, the way of the Fakir, which is the Islamic term traditionally used for Sufi Muslim ascetics who renounced their worldly possessions and dedicated their lives to the worship of Allah. The second is the way of the monk, which is a person who practices religious asceticism by living a monastic lifestyle. And the third is the way of the yogi. So that is a practitioner of the religious form of the combination of body movements, breath work, and meditation in concert with Indian religions, most specifically Hinduism, which is what we see normally uh, by practitioners of yoga. Okay? So, again, stick with me. So what is the fourth way that Gurchiv created? He developed it from... 1890 to 1912 while he was traveling in the Far East and while there he was influenced by different sects of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism and some other belief systems that we'll talk about a little bit later. He also claimed that esoteric Christianity, which is what he called it, was part of the scaffolding of his overall philosophy. So esoteric essentially means that it can only be understood by a select small number of people with specialized knowledge. Okay, so esoteric Christianity is essentially Gnosticism. So a lot of you have heard of Gnosticism, but that's a first century heretical movement which emphasized personal spiritual knowledge by a select group of people, right? Not not doctrine, not the Word of God, but just, you know, personal revelation. So simply, esoteric Christianity is heresy. It's not Christian in the least bit, but that's where he says he got some of the foundational work. The fourth way focuses on the harmonization of the body, the emotions, and the mind, and his approach to teaching this was taught by ritualistic dancing, okay? And he also demanded that people focus almost exclusively on themselves, and Gurchiff had a pupil named P.D. Ospinsky who carried Gurchiff's work on, and he wrote a book in 1977 called In Search of the Miraculous, and it was, you know, the following about the fourth way. So the fourth way teaches that the soul, this is from his book, that the soul is a human of an individual is born with Sorry, let me start that over. The fourth way teaches that the soul a human individual is born with gets trapped and encapsulated by personality and stays dormant, leaving one not really conscious despite believing one is. A person must be free to uh, must free the soul by following a teaching which can lead to this aim or go nowhere upon death of his body. Should a person be able to receive the teaching and find a school upon the death of a physical body, they will go elsewhere. Humans are born asleep live in sleep and die in sleep, only imagining that they are awake with few exceptions. Okay. So just generically in general, that's George Gurchiv. Now we need to go to the next guy and that's Oscar Achazo. So he died in 2020. He is a Bolivian philosopher, was a Bolivian philosopher. Most of his important work was done in the 1950s. And much of his work seems to be a derivative of Gurchiv's work, even though Achazo claimed that it wasn't. Okay. He is seen as the principal source of the modern Enneagram, okay, which he originally called the Enneagram of Personality. So in 1968, Achazo founded something called the Erica School, that's A-R-I-C-A, the Erica School, which was part of the Human Potential Movement, or HPM, okay? So here's a description from a magazine article from the 1970s of the Erica School, quote, a body of techniques for cosmic consciousness raising and an ideology to relate to the world in an awakened way. Okay, so most of Achazo's work was done outside of the United States until he came here in the 1970s. And when he came here in the 1970s, that's where he met this third guy we're going to talk about, Claudio Naranjo. Okay, so he died in 2019, but Claudio Naranjo is a Chilean psychiatrist and psycho spiritual teacher. Most of his work was done in the 1970s. 
he essentially learned everything that he knew about the Enneagram of personality from Achazo in the 1970s. So he took what he learned from Achazo and further developed it and taught it in the United States. And he specifically did this at the Esalen Institute and to his students at, wait for it, Berkeley, California. So the repository of all things stupid in America. But let's go back to the Esalen Institute. So what in the world is that? That is a nonprofit retreat center and community in Big Sur, California. Okay, so what do they focus on there? They focus on humanistic alternative education. So if you're not aware, humanism is a philosophy that emphasizes the individual and maintains that the starting point for all morality and all values is each individual. Okay, each individual. <clears throat> now, if all that wasn't enough, I've got an absolute doozy for you. Okay, so back in 2010, Claudio Naranjo was doing an interview with some fellows about his new book that he released called Healing Civilization. During that interview, Naranjo got onto the topic of the origin of the Enneagram. Right. Because, you know, some people thought, oh, it's kind of settled where it came from. But he's like, no, we're going to talk about this. So this is what he said during the interview. He was talking about presenting at a conference in Brazil for the IEA, which is the International Enneagram Association. So Naranjo said that Achazo, the guy that taught him the Enneagram, used to claim that he got the Enneagram from very ancient sources like the Babylonians. But then Naranjo said that Achazo later changed his tune to claim that he got the Enneagram from a higher source, right? So from Revelation. Then Naranjo said that Achazo stopped distinguishing between what knowledge he got from ancient sources and what knowledge he got from supposed higher sources. And then Naranjo in this video openly joked about how, the, how he then adopted this way of operating. He even used a uh, Oscar Wilde quote, which was something to the effect of, if you want an idea to become famous, attribute it to a famous person. So it, go back to the IEA conference that he did in Brazil. Naranjo told this audience, right, this audience of Enneagram proponents, that he made up the fact that the Enneagram had ancient historic origins from millennia ago. So the main guy who got the Enneagram to us in modernity said he made up the fact that it has ancient historic origins. A lot of you have been sold that, oh, this is just, this is knowledge from the universe that we've had for a long time. He basically says, no, nah, I, I just made it up. And then he makes a startling claim, okay? Naranjo claims that his teacher, his mentor, Achazo, never once taught about any of the nine enneotypes associated with the modern Enneagram. So the guy that taught Naranjo, those supposedly, those enneotypes, the pupil, the student said, no, he never taught us that. Naranjo then says in the interview that he literally made up the enneotypes. He made them up. And he did that based on his own observation. Okay? So all that is enough to really kind of give us pause on the enneagram. But this is where the face melting begins. Because I need to show you this clip real quick, and I'll, and I'll read it because the audio is not amazing, but I'm going to show you this short clip. This is from this interview and the entire interview I will put in the show notes, and this is about three minutes and 49 seconds in, but listen to this short, short clip. Again, he just got through saying that he made up the nine enneotypes, that Achazo didn't give them to him or teach him, that he just made up these nine enneotypes, and he confirmed them with his own personal observation, but listen to this clip here. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. came from my own observations, but mostly from automatic writing. It automatic writing? Yeah, it came to me through automatic writing. What did? Uh, the, the specific information and it's any types. Ab ab about any types, which yes. I then verified through observation, right. because I was surrounded by people right. I was teaching and exploring with. 
Okay, so if you couldn't really hear that, if that was a little bit hard to hear, let me just go ahead and give you the transcription here. Naranjo. So that came from my own observations, but mostly from automatic writing. Interviewer. Automatic writing? Naranjo. Yeah, it came to me from automatic writing. Interviewer. What did? Naranjo. The specific information about eniotypes, which I then verified through observation because I was surrounded by people I was teaching and exploring with. I'm going to chuck my headphones because uh, something's going on and I got a little bit of an echo. But if you're wondering what automatic writing is, the technical term is psychography. Okay, this is tapping into the spiritual realm using the tactics of a psychic. Okay. How this works is that a person participating in this type of activity typically will hold a a writing utensil of some kind and get some sort of thing to write on, and they will summon spirits to manipulate their hand, the practitioner's hand, in order to convey a message from the outer world. Okay? Perhaps you've heard of one of these types in one of these devices. It's called a Ouija board. Right. Remember back in the day when you'd go over to your friend's house, watch a scary movie, and then everybody would put their hand on the little thing that moved around and would try to spell out a message to you. So here's the thing. When you do automatic writing, when you summon one of these, you know, otherworldly spirits. This might actually be the uh, guys, this might actually be the key to the whole thing today. But people do literally receive messages in this way. Did you know that? Did you know that the, the psych, psychics and, and sorcerers and necromancers and these types of people, these people do literally receive messages. They will literally receive notions, ideas, philosophies that come off as coherent, that come off as useful and come off as helpful. That absolutely happens. But this begs the question, guys, where do you think these notions and ideas and philosophies are coming from during automatic writing? It's obviously coming from demons. It's coming from demonic sources. You're having people that are trying to connect to spirits that are outside of this world, and they do so, and they get stuff that is actually helpful and coherent, but it's not coming from a godly source. It's coming from demons. So as I was going through the research, there's this woman named Doreen Virtue. Okay, so she used to be one of the top-selling New Age authors in the world. Okay, so she used to be a practicing psychotherapist that would administer personality tests to her patients like the Enneagram, like the Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs is another personality test with very sketchy origins. I don't have time to get into that today, but that was until Jesus saved her. Okay, so she's now a Christian evangelist with a master's in biblical and theological studies from Western Seminary. And one of her primary focuses is waking naive Christians up as to the dangers of New Age philosophies and how that's kind of creeping in to a lot of different denominations and sects of Christianity, okay? I've heard her speak several times, and uh, I've heard her speak on how she participated in automatic writing throughout her career. She did this while she was writing her New Age bestseller, so she would literally summon spirits from the from outer worlds, and it would give her written down things, right? Only now that she is a repentant Christian, does she realize that the fruits that came from her automatic writing sessions came from demonic sources? Because only through the lens of the gospel and the new life she's been given via the blood of Christ can she even understand what was going on during those sessions. So, Naranjo made up the eniotypes after a session of essentially being temporarily possessed by a demon that he himself summoned. And the craziest thing about all this is almost no one has ever heard any of this stuff. 
Again, this is why I went so far down the rabbit hole. So let me give you a little bit of a summary right here before we move on uh, with talking about the Enneagram. So the tripartite godfathers of the Enneagram, that's Gurchiff, Achazo, and Naranjo, they created this personality philosophy using the direct influences of esotericism, occultism, witchcraft, mysticism, magic, Islam, Sufism, Hinduism, Buddhism, humanism, paganism, and demonism. Does anybody see any red flags from the lists I just went through? Again, esotericism, occultism, witchcraft, mysticism, magic, Islam, Sufism, Hinduism, Buddhism, humanism, paganism, demonism. That's where the Enneagram comes from. So you might ask yourself, so how do the demonic works of Gurchiff, Achazo, and Naranjo somehow infiltrate the modern Christian church? Well, two of Naranjo's students were actually Jesuit priests as well. So Naranjo taught them both how to use and apply the Enneagram, and those two students went on to adapt the Enneagram to use in Christian spirituality programs at Loyola University. That's where it started. And then we got some more gasoline thrown on the fire in the early 2000s. In 2001, the best-selling Franciscan friar and author named Reverend Richard Rohr wrote The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. So that book was the one that started really the tidal wave of popularity of the Enneagram specifically in modern Christendom, okay? There, again, are literally hundreds of books available now that attempt to combine Christianity and the Enneagram. And likely, millions of Christians today, like me, have taken the Enneagram test and have at least in some way applied it to how they comport themselves in the world. And so that's where we are now. We didn't get here, we didn't get here all at once, but we just got here kind of one little step at a time. Now, I can already hear some of the objections already. So if this is you, save the email because I'm going to answer your objection right now. Well then, Kyle, I bet you don't let your kids dress up and trick-or-treat for Halloween because of the demonic origins of the holiday. Or, hey, Kyle, what about yoga? I've heard you say before that you've done that. Yoga has roots in New Age and occultism and Eastern mysticism and a bunch of other stuff. I bet you, well, are you going to say we shouldn't do yoga anymore? So you might think that you have me there, but you definitely don't because I think that those of you that think that the Enneagram and Halloween and yoga, you think that they're fundamentally the same and superficially different, but the arguments here are exactly the opposite. The exact opposite is true. Those things are fundamentally different and only superficially the same. So let's talk about Halloween. I could do a whole episode on this, but I'm just going to go quickly because we need to also get to a lot of other stuff in this episode. But the modern observance of Halloween is, with very few exceptions, completely devoid and separated from the influence of pagan Celtic harvest festivals or occultic death worship. Like our church does... I don't even know what they call it, but it's basically a trunk or treat. Yeah, it's in our parking lot. And so all the kids and some of the parents dress up. They dress up as Woody from Toy Story and they dress up as dinosaurs and whatever else. And then we have these games that we've set up in the parking lot that they get to play. And if they win, they get candy and we do a chili cook off and there's pie eating and there's there's all these different things. It's basically a fall festival that is completely separated from the Celtic harvest festivals and occultic death worship completely. And that is how most people celebrate Halloween. Do certain people help celebrate the demonic uh, origins of that? Yes, but almost everybody has separated it off to create it something that's just fun for the family. Then you got yoga. Does yoga have roots and traditions in things like Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism and New Age and all that stuff? Yes, it does. 
Do you have to practice Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, or New Age in order to do yoga, a yoga routine? No, of course not. Why? Because the physical act of performing the stretches and holds that are part of a typical yoga routine can and are often separated completely from the religious aspects of the yoga practice. Because guess what? If you're a guy out there and there's a lot of you that you have some low back pain, it's probably because you have really, really tight hips and hamstrings. You know what's great for tight hips and hamstrings? Different yoga routines that will open up your hips and hamstrings. Now, if you hook your ponytail to a tree and you do some ohms and you face the east and you turn it into a spiritual practice, then yeah, you're, you're playing with the occult. Like you're, you're playing with, with religions that are not of the religion you purport to have, which is Christianity. So in a nutshell, the origins and traditions of Halloween can and are for many separated from the modern observance of Halloween. And the origins and traditions of yoga practice can and are for many separated from the modern physical performance of yoga routines for bodily health. But the origins and traditions of the Enneagram cannot be separated from how people choose to use the Enneagram in modern society. And that's because sprinkling Bible verses over the top of the Enneagram simply does not take away the clearly demonic origins it has. Like, it it doesn't matter how much powdered sugar you put on top of a pile of dog poop, you're still eating poop, right? Now, something else that I'm sure some of you are thinking is, Kyle, You've been talking about this for over a half hour. Is this really the hill to die on? The Enneagram? Really? To which I would answer, no. This isn't the hill to die on. As I've said before, I will die on the hill of protecting the unborn from slaughter. I'll die on that hill, certainly. I'll die on the hill of protecting kids from profit-driven children's hospitals and LGBTQ culture warriors that are all too eager to bodily mutilate and chemically castrate gender-confused minors. Yeah, I'll die on that hill. But I, I would turn that question around on you and ask you this. Why are you so comfortable with Christians being so damn gullible? Well, why do you think this is something that should just be ignored? What makes you think this is a nothing burger? Because we will literally follow our stupid hearts and our dumb brains and believe just about anything that anyone teaches us without running it through the filter of a biblically informed Christian ethic. We do this with so many things. The Enneagram is just one of those things. So what I want to transition into now is talking about why Christians should not utilize the Enneagram at all in their lives. Okay, I'm going to give you five reasons and we'll go through these pretty quick. And you might find that any one of the following is enough to disqualify its use in your life personally or your business or whatever, but certainly the combination of these reasons is reason enough to disqualify the use of the Enneagram. So here's number one, the number one reason, these aren't in any order, but number one, why Christians should not utilize the Enneagram in their lives is it has clear demonic origins that cannot be separated from its modern application. Okay. The Enneagram is not something that you can simply eat the fish and spit out the bones. You can't do that. Number two. It has no backing in scientific or psychological data. So there's nothing at all that proves that this works in any way, shape, or form other than anecdotes. Number three, it demands that we focus internally to attain a personal understanding of capital K knowledge and capital T truth. Again, as I said earlier, it's Gnosticism. Because we should not be trying to go internally to find truth within ourselves, this whole my truth concept because that is completely anathema to a Christian understanding of the world, okay? Number four, and this is a big one, okay? 
It provides us an excuse to find our identity in our eniotype and not in Christ, which gives us license to keep on sinning. I mean, I've literally heard people say this. Well, I'm just an Enneagram 8, so I can't help it. Whoopsies. Just the way I am. Just the way God made me. I was born this way, so on and so forth. Now, we would not give any credence to those arguments in any other area of life. So if someone's like, oh, I was born this way, I'm gay, you'd be like, no. You are currently being attacked from Satan and dark forces, and you're being attacked with same-sex attraction. You're not actually homosexual. Again, we wouldn't accept that. But someone's like, oh, I'm an Enneagram too. And we're like, gosh, that makes sense. You got me there. Trump card. And the fifth reason here is the Enneagram is antithetical to a Bible-based way of doing life. And it's simply not redeemable. It's not redeemable. Again, I talk about accept, reject, redeem. There's things that we should just outright accept. There's some things that we should outright reject, and there's some things that we should redeem. That is, you know, eating the fish and spitting out the bones. But this is not something that can be redeemed. And I think I've proved it to you up to this point, right? I mean, some of us have become experts in our eniotype, but we know nothing about the Word of God. And when I was doing this, you know, business consultation stuff, I was an expert on my Enneagram type and the Enneagram types of other people, but I wasn't spending almost any time in the word whatsoever. Like at all. So if you're a Christian and you decide to use the Enneagram, are you sinning? Yes. I remember when I was preparing this episode, I wasn't going to say yes. I was going to say, oh, I guess it depends. But the more I research, it's like, well, yeah, clearly. I don't see a great argument for how it's not. If you're a Christian and you know the information that I've given you and you still decide to use it, you are sinning. Because God is clear in his word that we are to avoid such things. So if I go to Leviticus 20, verse 6, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, pouring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. And for all you people that dismiss everything in the Old Testament because you think Andy Stanley's smart, because you think, you know, that's part of the Old Covenant, I don't need to pay attention to it, let's see what Paul has to say in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is sinful to use something with such demonic origins now that you know its origins. All of you listening to this right now cannot claim ignorance. I have disabused you of your ignorance on this subject, okay? And you now have to reckon with the truth that I have brought before you today and make a conscious decision on how to act moving forward. So some of you may need to repent for using the Enneagram and for the amount of emphasis that you put it in it for your life personally. This is what I've had to do. Excuse me. Because whenever I was looking back on the amount of emphasis I put on the Enneagram, I look back on it after I learned all this in just complete shame. But we're not supposed to stay in our shame and wallow in our shame because I just gave that to God. And, you know, I, I repented. I asked for forgiveness specifically for the sin of using the Enneagram in my life and taking that to, that to other people. Some, some people that I was also trying to share the gospel with. How confusing, right? So some of you need to repent for using the Enneagram like I have. Some of you may need to just 
mark and avoid the Enneagram moving forward. So if someone's like, hey, do you want to take this test? You just say no. If it's at work, if it's in a social setting, just say no and give them the reasons. Some of you don't need to change anything because you never heard of the Enneagram before today. <laughs> you don't even take personality tests and you've had no idea what I've been talking about for like the last 40 minutes or so. So those are some of you. But there's another point as we wrap up our discussion of the Enneagram and move on. There are so many other quality personality profile is profiles and tests out there that you can use to help you in relationships and business that don't have all the demonic baggage that the Enneagram does. Like when I talk to people that are like, oh yeah, but the Enneagram's just so good. Is it the only one that's good? Is it the only one that's helpful? Is that the only one you can use in your church or in your business or in your relationship? Like there's a lot that can replace it. So I'm going to give you a few just off the top of my head as I was doing research. These are ones that I found to be very, very useful. Now, all the ones I'm about to suggest are they're generic personality tests. Some have more of an emphasis on or focus on psychology, some on business, some on relationships, but they can be used in a myriad of applications. The first one is the big five. So the big five looks at openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And so just so I can kind of give you an idea of where I'm at on all these, if you're curious. So my number one is extroversion. Extroversion, I scored 100% on extroversion. Number two at 87.5% was conscientiousness. Number three at 79% was openness. Number four at 62.5% was neuroticism. And way down at 21% was agreeableness, <laughs> which is a shock to nobody. The next one that I think is important is the Clifton strengths that used to be called strengths finder. So that focuses on strengths themes that are sorted into four different domains. That's strategic thinking, relationship building, influencing and executing or executing, sorry, executing. So the last time I did this was over a decade ago, but my number one was achiever. My number two was command. My number three was focus. My number four was competition. And my number five was significance. I think there's like 40 or 45 different things that you could get in, but I'm sure mine's pretty much the same. But then there's also the DISC profile. That's capital D, lowercase I, capital S, capital C. Don't know why it is that way, but it is that way. That looks at how you fit your, uh, into kind of four different personality types. So there's dominance, influence, steadiness, and conscientiousness. And you're either like high or low in those areas. And I'm high dominance, high D. And then the last one is the five love languages, five love languages. So a lot of you guys have done that, especially if you got your Christian counseling before you got married. But that looks at a preference for words of affirmation acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. Okay, so mine are the order that I just read them in. So my number one is words of affirmation, right behind is acts of service, receiving gifts is right up there, and then there's kind of a big gap, and then there's quality time and then physical touch. So freaking don't touch me, right? That's probably has to do with jujitsu because it's like typically when people are touching me, they're trying to, you know, throw me on my head and then choke me unconscious. But, um, and again, the five level love languages doesn't have this big, like data set, but it is helpful for a lot of families and specifically in a marriage context. So as we end our discussion of the Enneagram, I promise we're ending it here. I want to bring you a couple of scriptures. The first is first Peter five, eight. This is one I gave you from the beginning. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The thing is, is Satan's not dumb. He's defeated, but he's not dumb. And when he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, he's not just going to do that by just going around acting crazy. He's hunting, right? And if you're not sober-minded and if you're not watchful, he might get you. And then we have Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
A lot of you go to churches that doesn't talk about spiritual warfare at all because most Christian churches don't talk about spiritual warfare at all. So you're completely ill-equipped to be sober-minded and to be watchful because you think we're wrestling against flesh and blood. You think, well, I trust this guy or gal that administered this test to me. I trust these authors and I seem to be getting value out of this. But Satan and his demons are very, very cunning. They're very shrewd and they're smooth. They're smooth operators. And so they've been able to put this demonic thing in such a beautiful little package, just sneak it into a bunch of Christians' lives. And again, Christians are looking at this and they're basing how they operate in the world, how they treat their spouses, how they raise their family, how they study the Bible. They're looking at it through the lens of themselves and their type. So think about this. I say all the time, the Bible's not about us. The Bible's for us, but it's not about us. But if you're taking, I'm an Enneagram 5 to your Bible study because you're like, well, this is kind of where I'm at. You're practicing standpoint epistemology, which means because of who you are and your upbringing and your immutable characteristics, you're going to understand the world differently than everybody else. Not that you've had different experiences, because obviously that's true of everyone, but that you have some sort of specialized knowledge. Again, that standpoint epistemology, which is essentially Gnosticism. So guys, I can't really yell at you enough about this. You've got to take this seriously. You cannot use the Enneagram whatsoever. If you do, you're sinning. You need to stop. You need to repent. There you go. Hey guys, real quick. Here recently, I went on a hunting trip with a group of guys, and one of the guys had lost 50 pounds on the carnivore diet. And some of you guys don't need to lose a bunch of weight, but you're trying to maximize your overall health. And a lot of you are experimenting like me with the carnivore diet. But the problem is, is you don't have a cattle operation that you can trust to get you high quality beef. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friends, the official beef delivery partner of Undaunted Life, Primal Beef. Primal Beef is a cattle operation owned and operated by Sean Glass. He's a retired Navy SEAL that has partnered with Jocko Willing to launch Primal Beef. So what makes Primal Beef different from other fly-by-night beef delivery companies? It's a combo of the following. All-American Black Angus cattle. The beef comes from one farm. That's one farm in Virginia, Shenandoah Valley. The beef is all natural, no hormones ever, no mRNA ever, and no vaccines ever. And after slaughter, the beef is actually dry aged and then hand cut by artisan butchers and then flash frozen to ensure that it maintains tenderness, marbling and flavor. And here's another really cool thing. For every box sold, Primal Beef donates meat directly to a member of America's Special Operations Forces through the C4 Foundation. So you can take pride in knowing that your purchase will help literally put food on the table for America's finest warriors. Stave off veganism and try Primal Beef out today by going to www.primalbeef.com. That's primalbeef.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 10% off of your first order. The great thing about that promo code is you can use it and stack it on other deals as well. Again, that's primalbeef.com, promo code Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E to get 10% off your order. So let's go ahead and transition now into the quick hitters. I know we spent a lot of time on that, but let's hit these last four things here. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine vetoing a bill that would have banned the bodily mutilation and chemical castration of trans-identified children in his state. In his state. So this is according to the Daily Wire. 
Governor Mike DeWine, Republican of Ohio, signed a limited executive order on Friday, this is last Friday, banning transgender surgeries on children just one week after he vetoed a bill that would have prohibited all transgender procedures on minors. DeWine's executive order comes as Republicans in the state push to override his veto of the Saving Adolescents from Experimentation Act, HB 68, a bill that would have protected children from transgender surgeries as well as puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, which have life-altering impacts and can harm fertility, bone development, and heart health. There's a broad, broad consensus against surgeries for, minor, for minors, so let's put that into law so that we can move on and talk about other things, DeWine said on Friday after facing sharp criticism over his veto from Republicans like Senator J.D. Vance and former President Donald Trump. The State House of Representatives is expected to vote next week, that's this week, to override DeWine's veto of the bill, which also would have kept men out of women's sports. So guys, I, I think I can say this by the time this comes out, they may have already done so. So again, I'm recording this on Tuesday. It's coming out a couple of days from now. Rest assured that the Ohio legislature will override this evil pansy's veto and this law, thank God, will go into effect. So the young people of Ohio will be safe from boys in their locker rooms and, you know, gender confused teenagers having their junk cut off. Okay. But my big takeaway on this story is he's obviously a gutless coward. But now he's a gutless coward in both directions, right? So he takes some heat from the transgender lobby and profit-driven hospitals that bribed him to make him veto the bill. The guy has gotten like tens of thousands of dollars specifically from children's hospitals in Ohio that do these procedures. And then he takes some heat from conservatives and then he tries to split the baby by doing this worthless executive order. Because when you veto a law, you have to basically hit the reset button and come up with, as a legislature, come up with something completely different. But when you do an executive order, you know what it takes to get rid of an executive order? The next person that comes into office going, that's gone now. Takes me back to the Trump presidency when he had all these executive orders you all were so excited about. You know when those executive orders expired? The first day of Joe Biden's presidency. These executive orders are great, but they're only great temporarily. And there's another big takeaway on this one before we move off. How much longer... Can we expect for Americans to just keep electing these spineless, non-conservative, immoral, cowardly Republicans that have no convictions? How much longer are we going to allow people that we elected to represent us to operate in this way? Because this is all I hear. You know, I hear people locally complaining about national elections and it's like, okay, well, you know, how about you worry about what's happening in your own city? I talked about that in the episode earlier this year. But we will elect someone mayor. They will do things that we don't like, and then we will elect them again as mayor. We will vote for somebody to represent us as a United States senator, and then they go to Washington and they literally vote in a way that you think is abhorrent and immoral, and immoral, and you still vote for these people. Like, when are we going to hold these people accountable? Because true accountability in a political sense is done at the ballot box. It's not done by rioting. It's not done by breaking into the Capitol. It's not done by throwing bricks. It's not done by you know posting things on Twitter. It's at the ballot box. Stop voting for these people. If they trick you into thinking like, no, I'm, I'm not a spineless, immoral coward. If they trick you, whenever they prove you wrong, whenever they prove that they are indeed a spineless coward that's not going to do things, the most simple thing, which is to protect children in your state, we have to get rid of them. And we do that by getting them out of office. So this is his second term, as far as I understand, so he doesn't have another term that he's going for. But if you live in Ohio, you should call your state representative 
right? And if you want to call your senator and, and house rep as well, the U.S. house rep, go for it. He needs to be removed from office. He should not be able to sit in the governor's mansion one second longer than he needs to. Get him out of office. If, if this had happened in Oklahoma, if Stitt had done this, if Kevin Stitt, our governor, had done this, I would be moving heaven and earth to get him removed from office because he's in his second term. He's not going to get a third, right? Because we don't, we don't allow for that in Oklahoma. That's what I would be moving for. That's what all Ohioans should be doing. Our next quick hitter here, Harvard President Claudine Gay resigning after failing to condemn anti-Semitism on campus at Harvard and after revelations of intentional plagiarism in roughly half of her scholarly works. Such a dumb story. This is also according to the Daily Wire. Claudine Gay resigned as president of Harvard University on Tuesday, this was January the 2nd, in a letter to the university community as first reported by the Harvard Crimson. Gay's reported resignation comes in the wake of numerous plagiarism allegations as well as her controversial congressional testimony on what Harvard is doing to combat anti-Semitism on campus after Hamas's attacks on Israel. And then the article just kind of details some of the things that she said in her statement, which were essentially useless, worthless platitudes, but we'll get back into the article here. Then Gay tried to diminish the allegations against her by claiming racial animus had fueled some of the criticism against her. Surprise, surprise. Quote, amidst all of this, it has been distressing to have doubts cast on my commitments to confronting hate and upholding scholarly rigor to bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am and frightening to be subjugated to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus, unquote. Gay has been hit with nearly 50 allegations of plagiarism affecting eight of her 17 published works. So one quick note on that. She has 17 published works and she was made president of the most famous university on the planet. You never see that. When you see these presidents of these Ivy League institutions, these people have well over 100 published works. They are experts in a particular field. In her field, her 17 published works were all on uh, uh, the plight of black people in America. It was all you know racial grievance stuff. It wasn't even actual scholarship. So the reaction has been how what you would expect. So there are a bunch of morons that are like, oh, this is clearly racism. They're trying. This is a modern day lynching. This is terrible. This is awful. They wouldn't have done this if she wasn't a black woman, those types of things. And then there were a lot of people on the right that said, like, this is this is great. Like, this is fine. Um, you know, obviously, like we should be doing this with more university presidents, regardless of their immutable characteristics. And then the AP, the uh, Associated Press. They said that the right, so people on the right are using this new conservative weapon called plagiarism. <laughs> it's like, what? What? Because this is what I know. If I, as a freshman at the University of Central Oklahoma in my English Comp 2 class or something like that, if I had done exactly what Claudine Gay would have done and my professor found out, you know what would have happened? I would have, at minimum, got an F for the course. I also could have got what's called an XF or an X, which basically means you failed a class because you were caught cheating. I would have lost my full ride scholarship and I could have even been kicked out of the university. That's how serious plagiarism is taken every, everywhere in academia, except apparently at the most famous educational institution on planet Earth. Now, earlier I said that she intentionally plagiarized, so I am imputing motive to a person. The reason why I say that she intentionally plagiarized is because there's really only three potential options here. There's only three. Number one, Claudine Gay is literally so stupid and so bad at being an academic that she has no idea how to properly cite things. That's option one. Option two, she is simultaneously bad at citing things about half of the time 
while blatantly plagiarizing the other half of the time. Or the third option, which is obviously the most reasonable, which is that she's just an outright blatant plagiarist. That she didn't just forget to use, you know, quotes. She didn't just forget to attribute it in her bibliography. She knew what she was doing. She was taking whole sections of other people's work, changing out a few verb tenses and things here or there, prepositions, and just jamming it into her nonsense scholarly work. So if you're a Claudine Gay fan, though, you don't need to worry because she is being allowed to go back to being a professor at Harvard, another job that she never should have gotten in the first place. And she's going to keep her presidential salary of $900,000. So think about what you make in a year, and then think about somebody who's not even a real academic getting paid $900,000 a year to teach mainly white kids and Asians that they're awful, terrible, and that they're oppressing people of color. That's essentially her job. So my big takeaway on this one, kind of a little bit of a shift here, vicious animals fight their fiercest right before they are killed. DEI, diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion, is on the ropes right now. People are already ordering the flowers for its funeral, but let me warn you to watch out because I feel like we ain't seen nothing yet. Because I would love to see DEI out of everything. I'm super proud of my governor, Kevin Stitt, second mention on the show, for basically getting rid of all DEI apartments and higher education institutions in my state. I think every red governor should do that. It's the lowest hanging of low-hanging fruit. These things are nonsense. Now, these universities aren't just going to get rid of these departments entirely. They're just going to change the names of it. Kind of like they don't call it wokeism or Black Lives Matterism. They call it you know social-emotional learning, right? So they just kind of change it up so that you know they kind of play shell games with it. But I feel like we're going to see the woke folk, the people that are far on the left wing that love DEI and think that everything can be explained by your standpoint based on your immutable characteristic of the level of melanin in your skin. I feel like these people are going to go nuts. I feel like they're going to do. It's kind of like Michael Scott when he was dating um, the, the secretary's mom there for a little bit. Pam's mom. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to date her even harder. Right. Because she hated the fact that it was, you know, that he was dating her mom. I feel like that's what's going to happen. They're going to be like, oh, all you people on the right, you finally noticed and caught on to what we were doing. Well, now guess what? Suck it. We're going to make you just like take this no matter what. We're going to keep shoving it down your throats. If they do that, you know what you should do, mom and dad? Stop paying for your kids' tuition to go to one of those schools that's trying to marinate them in these demonic, horrific ideas. Stop doing it. If you have kids like mine, three-year-old and a one-year-old, don't plan to just send them to college to just go and discover themselves and go to some football games. Don't just mindlessly do that. They want to be an engineer. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a lawyer. If they want to do something like that, actually study something, maybe in the STEM fields. Yeah, they need to go to college to get that. But if they're just going to go and get a communication degree or an English degree or something like that, there are other roads to get to the job that you want. And most people just want to make a lot of money. And so tell your kid to skip school, go to trade school, become a plumber or an electrician or a welder or something like that. Within a few years out of school, they're going to be making six figures and probably employing other people and, you know, providing for other families, not just their own. So just be prepared. I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. All right. Next quick hitter here. Donald Trump being removed from the Republican primary ballot in Colorado and Maine. So this is according to Fox News. Maine's Democratic Secretary of State on Thursday, this was a couple Thursdays ago, disqualified former President Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot. In her ruling, Secretary of State Shinna Bellows 
Sheena Bellows, whatever, cited Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which bans from office those who engaged in insurrection. So the reaction is, as you would expect, Trump is obviously appealing. People on the left love it. They think this is great. People on the right, especially MAGA Trumpers, they think it's the worst thing that's ever happened whatsoever. This is very likely going to the Supreme Court. I think they've already indicated that it's going to go there. They've indicated that they they have to kind of figure this out and make a ruling as quickly as possible because a lot of these primaries are forthcoming. They're, we're right on the heels of a lot of these things. And so they're going to have to make a ruling on this. I'm interested in the ruling because the ruling should come back nine to zero that this is completely unconstitutional and ridiculous. If it's 6-3, you know, conservatives versus uh, non-conservatives, who the heck knows what Justice Roberts is going to do. But this should be an 8-1-9-1 because, you know, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, she's basically an activist. So she's definitely not going to vote for this because no one will let her live it down. But we'll see how this goes. Now, I honestly think that Trump will be on all of the Republican primary ballots because I think the SCOTUS is going to throw this ruling out. And regardless... Even if a few blue whack jobs in blue states prevent Trumpers from voting for him in the primaries, it's not going to change the outcome of the Republican primary. Trump will win the nomination, unfortunately. I think he's just going to run away with it. And we're going to see that, you know, really starting to come to fruition within the next couple of months. But to all of you big time Trump supporters out there, I do have a question for you. And need I remind you, I did vote for Donald Trump in 2020. So I'm not a Trump hater outright. I just call balls and strikes on the guy. But I do have a question for you. Do you actually think that Democrats will stop trying to nail Trump if he's elected president? You think they're going to stop all this? Because I'm not sure that most of you have thought through this completely. I'm not calling you stupid, but I don't think you've really thought this through because you would have to be a fool to believe that electing him president again solves all these problems. Because even if he's elected president, all you have done is extend his problems to more focus his problems. Because need I remind you that he was impeached twice in four years and the Democrats never even alleged high crimes nor misdemeanors, which is the standard. So they ignored the standard. They brought charges. They knew he wasn't going to be removed from office, but they just did it anyway. Because for funsies or something. Don't you think that his entire four years would just be stymied? By impeachment probe after impeachment probe after impeachment charge after impeachment process. Because obviously the Democrats would have to take the House back over, which is certainly possible. And if they do so, they're probably going to still have the Senate so they could literally remove him from office. So if you care about America more than you care about a single American and Donald Trump, which I hope you do care about the country more than you care about just Trump, perhaps you should back a candidate that doesn't have the baggage that Trump does. Because a candidate like Ron DeSantis will do all of the positive policy things that the Trump administration would have done, plus more. That's essentially a guarantee. As we've seen with Florida, he turned a purple state into a deep red state, and basically everything he's tried to do from a policy perspective, he's been able to do. And not just do it, get it completed, but did it astonishingly well. Ron DeSantis isn't going to blow you away with his personality, but the dude's a winner. The dude is absolutely a winner when it comes to policy. And a guy like Ron DeSantis can be in office for eight years instead of Trump's max of four. So again, if you care about the country more than a person, you have to think about this more strategically. So if you want to support Donald Trump's defense fund, and if you want to help him defend himself from these specious prosecutions, which are for the most part all ridiculous, except for the one down in Florida, go for it. Support him. 
But when it comes to the business of getting America back on track, you need to start being reasonable. Now, again, I say this as a guy that if he wins the nomination, which I think he will, I will vote for him. I will gladly vote for him over, you know, Donald or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or, you know, Michelle Obama. I will gladly do that. But you have to be real. Trump cannot fix this country because he will be too busy trying to keep himself out of prison or to get himself out of prison because he's very likely going to be convicted. Electing Trump doesn't own the libs like you think it will. But my big takeaway on this is a little bit of a shift. I just don't like where any of this is going. When I look at the end of 2024 and when I look at the whole run up to it, I don't like what I'm hearing. I don't like what I'm feeling. So I mean that in a lot of ways. I don't like how Democrat operatives like this state attorney general up in Maine, I don't like how they are just doing communism openly now. Because used to it was kind of like cagey communism, like, you know, it's communism hiding behind a bush. Not anymore. They're just outright with it now. They're just, it's, they're just putting it right in your face now. So I don't like that. But I also don't like what I'm hearing from freedom-loving, hardworking, patriotic Americans about how we should or how they will respond if this keeps happening. Because people are pointing out that the last time somebody was, you know, tried to be removed from a ballot so that they couldn't win re-election was Abraham Lincoln. You know what happened? We had a civil war. We, we had all these different things that, that were happening. Like there's a lot of things happening right now where people on the right are talking about things in terms of a civil war. They're talking about this as if this is a meltdown thing. <clears throat> and as I mentioned before, every side right now are both sides, the left and the right, conservatives and liberal, liberals, Democrats and Republicans. They're going to feel justified in extreme actions, regardless of the outcome of the election. Because if Joe Biden wins, Republicans, Trumpers, will think that the election was stolen and that it was rigged again, even though they couldn't prove that in court last time around. And then if Trump wins, every Democrat's going to be like, well, which country did he collude with now? Remember Russia collusion? That was like a three year long thing. And then they're going to feel justified in destroying the country. Again, I mentioned this recently. When I was in Austin during the election night in 2020, all of the places downtown were boarded up. Why? Because the people of Austin were terrified of what Biden supporters would do if Biden didn't get elected. They didn't do that because of Trump. Now, maybe they, they should have because there was a segment of Trump supporters that did actually think, because they're morons, they did actually think that if they stormed the Capitol, that they could overturn the results of this election. Whereas most of the people on January 6th were just like, well, this is kind of crazy, and you know, no one's been able to prove if it was an inside deal or not. But that's the reality. <clears throat> I don't really like what 2024 is shaping up to look like, but we're going to be here for every step of the way to walk you guys through it, I guess. All right, last quick hitter here. The release of the names of some of Jeffrey Epstein's pedophilic clients. This is according to Newsweek. After weeks of speculation and anticipation, many of the names of former associates, employees, friends, and victims of deceased sex offender Jeremy Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein rather, have been released. The names were unsealed from a lawsuit filed by Virginia Griff, sorry, an alleged trafficking victim against British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's former girlfriend. Maxwell, 61, is serving a 20-year prison sentence after she was convicted in December of 2021 of helping Epstein recruit and sexually abuse underage girls. Many of those whose names appeared in documents released Wednesday aren't accused of wrongdoing or have been mentioned previously in legal proceedings or new accounts. The documents released Wednesday, again, this is last Wednesday, are not an Epstein client list. So here's the reality. We are never, never going to get his client list. Y'all need to get, get real. Some of you are like obsessed with the client list. We're never going to get it. We're never going to get it. It seems like 
he was potentially an intelligence asset. They killed him to keep his mouth shut. I can't believe how Ghislaine Maxwell is still alive, but she's not going to serve out her sentence and then just live, live out her life quietly somewhere. She will likely be killed at some point before she opens her mouth. We're never going to know. I mean, people have talked about Bill Clinton being on this list and Prince Andrew, Andrew Andrews, whichever, uh, you know, David Copperfield was mentioned, Leonardo DiCaprio was mentioned, but again, some of these people were just mentioned, but not mentioned in any potential wrongdoing, right? Alan Dershowitz and some others. So we're just never going to know. Bill Clinton's not going to go to prison for very likely being a pedophilic weirdo, right? Because it can't be proven. For, for all intents and purposes, most of the blackmail content that Jeffrey Epstein had was destroyed. There were places that, you know, they kind of raided his place in New York and then they didn't get a warrant. And then it took like two or three days for the court order to get the warrant, which the warrant should have been able to been, you know, administered immediately. And then by the time they got back, all these files and all these hard drives and all that were taken away. It's just, guys, I'm kind of over the story, which doesn't mean I don't care about the victims of this because obviously I care about that very, very much, but we're just not going to be able to find these people. Okay. So my big takeaway on this one though, is it's easy to focus on someone else's depravity when it's this dark, but we have to remember our own depravity as well. So I'm not saying that the people that actually went to uh, Epstein's F Island and, you know, uh, raped these children and all these different things. I'm not saying that wasn't depraved. Clearly it was depraved. But when we see depra depravity like that, or when we see like depravity, like a serial killer or someone that, you know, just ran over somebody on the street for fun or something like that. It's easy to look at that and be like, oh gosh, now that's evil. And it kind of gets you a little puffed up because you're like, well, I'm not like that. I'm not bad like that guy. I mean, that guy, you know, killed people and like cut their skin off and wore it on his face. That's crazy, which it is. But he's just as much of a sinner as you are because again, sin is binary. In, in terms of the cross and in terms of the atonement that we get from the cross, it's binary. You either have put your faith in Christ for the propitiation of your sin debt, or you haven't. I'm not going to get into a discussion about like whether or not you're elected to be in that group or not, but you either are or you aren't. You've either, either made that decision to follow Christ or you're deciding not to. You're worshiping at the altar of Jesus or you're worshiping at the altar of self, which is basically includes everything. So as you read these stories, as you go through these headlines and all that, just remember, those people need a savior just like you do. I'm reminded of whenever I was in Lewisburg prison about a year ago, and I'm sitting there in the room, again, I've talked about it a lot, with multiple murderers, people that had multiple bodies. One guy I shook hands with, I, I came to find out, had killed four people that we know of, right? Murderers, rapists, burglars, armed robbers, pedophiles. I was interacting with all of them, shaking their hands, talking to them. And the thing I said from the very beginning, I got up there because you, you know the drill. It's like these people, they didn't have to be there. They, they got to choose to be there. And there was a bunch of guys there. And I said, you know, the main difference between you guys and me, I get to leave when I'm done with my speech. Now, you guys have crossed the lines of man. That's why you're here. That's why you don't get to leave with me. But we've all crossed the lines of God. So in that way, we are brothers. And I did that to set the tone for what I was going to talk about because I wasn't hovering above them while I was talking. I wasn't special. I'm a sinner just like them. I have a different address than they do. They get a lot less privileges than I do, but we're sinners just the same. Sinners in need of a savior, and luckily we got one.
All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got some links today. I've got a link to our donation page. A lot of the references I made in this episode, I put here uh, in, in the end. So I've got the debate I talked about between Todd Wilson and Marsha Montenegro. I've got that clip of Claudio Naranjo basically saying he did the Enneagram because of automatic writing. Then I have a couple of interviews, one with Doreen Virtue and one with Marsha Montenegro that you guys can check out. One of them is on Elisa Childers' podcast. I've got all the links to everything I talked to in the quick hitters today, and there's probably some other stuff in there that I just don't really feel like saying at this point, but that's all right there in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perfect. Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Facedown Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>